Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous. I'm Morgan. I'm Gretchen. Today we're going to bring you season one, The Texas Killing Fields, episode 18, The Missing Girls Never Found. We're going to bring you into today's episode with a listener question from Lori Kay. Lori Kay says, I have a question for you. It was stated from numerous sources that autopsies were performed on Sharon Shaw and Renee Johnson, but on both death certificates, it clearly says that they were not done on either girl. Any insight into this? I think that's a great question. Um, and thank you for reaching out to us. So when they're stating that autopsies were fat, were done, I believe they're misstating a little bit because, um, the examination of the bones and the remains were done at the medical examiner's office. They're basically kind of attributing that to an autopsy, but because the remains on both girls were just skeletonized, I mean, just bones and not even at that a complete skeleton, it's more of an examination. Um, you can't do an autopsy if you don't have you know, the at least partial remains that would have organs and at least vital organs and that type of thing. So you're just doing basically an examination of them. And, but when newspapers are picking it up and people are having the understanding, it's more that understanding of autopsy is a little bit easier to grasp. And so the words being used is that, um, as opposed to just saying the medical examiner did an examination of the bones. Right. And, but on a death certificate, because the bones are listed because on the death certificate, it's listed as only skeletonized. Then essentially you're not doing an autopsy. You have no vital organs to do an autopsy on. So that's why the medical examiner is checking the box for now. Okay. I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Lori. And as always, we do encourage anybody to reach out to us if you have any further comments or questions. Um, and with that, I think we're going to get started on today's episode. And we are going to start with Michelle Doherty Thomas. She lived in Altaloma, which is now part of Santa Fe. Yeah. And I think we've talked about Altaloma being kind of a small community outside of the Santa Fe area, which is now really been brought into Santa Fe, Texas. Altaloma is outside of Galveston, Texas. Um, and when we're talking about the Texas killing fields being that I-45 and Highway 6 quarter, Highway 6 runs right through the middle of Santa Fe as you head into Galveston. And so that's the area that we're talking about today. So Michelle Doherty Thomas was a 17-year-old single mother of a one-year-old boy. On October 5th, 1985, she was last seen leaving her residence and headed to Galveston to meet up with friends at the Cave Club on Stewart Beach on Galveston Island. Friends at the club say that she never showed up, even though she did leave with a group of people from her house. Um, apparently, that group and her never arrived at the club. She was wearing a Harley Davidson tank top and jeans, carrying a beige uh, purse. Other reports say that it was a purple t-shirt and that she had on brown boots. 
early on, there are small articles uh, in the newspaper requesting information on her disappearance. She was never seen again. Police announced that she was working as a drug informant and may have been killed because of that. There were suspects early on in this case. They never went out and named anybody publicly for Michelle's disappearance or murder. At the time, police say Michelle went out with, in the evening with two friends and was apparently taken from their car to another car, taken to an isolated location near Dickinson where they believe that she was killed. Um, they also state that there was um, pretty much no doubt that uh, this was a homicide. You know what always uh, gets me about her story, and you know I go round and round with you on this, is her being a police informant. You know, especially at her age, she's still a minor. Right. You know, it's concerning that maybe her parents don't know any more about that or somebody in her family, but it's almost like she's just kind of tossed away. Like, you know, she's not really brought into the public eye. And is it because they're trying to save face on another case? Yeah, it's, it's definitely confusing. And I know that Michelle's family members and of course, Michelle's mother has been pretty outspoken on this case that she has, her case has never gotten the attention that the Renee Richardson's case that we'll cover in a later episode. And also the Shelly uh, Sykes case that we're going to cover today garnered that type of attention. And, you know, unfortunately, I think part of that is the time period here mm -hmm. where the public's eye and, and, and certainly the media looked at um, possibly her case as, well, she was somebody who was involved in the drug scene. So therefore, you know, she's, she's lesser of, yeah, right? she's unfortunately. disposable, unfortunately, you know, or that we've seen that on runaway cases. Well, they ran away. So, you know, therefore there's just not much information brought out there because it's almost like they're a, a bad kid. Right. Mm -hmm. And so since, you know, it's looked upon as she's involved in this drug culture, well, well, you know, and the thing about it too is like the police will definitely use maybe if she had gotten in trouble and that, you know, she's got a child and they use that as leverage, uh -huh. you know, to persuade people to put themselves in a dangerous situation of becoming an informant to right. begin with, you know, and that's what is very disturbing to me about her story. I think, you know, uh, uh, other than what has happened to her right. as well, you know, you know, and, and police basically stated, um, a while after her case had kind of, you know, um, gone cold or, or not had much information on it. They basically stated that they were hoping that in the following time that somebody would, you know, slip up and tell somebody what happened or that her body would be found and that that would then, um, get this case to, to move forward. 
I see it totally different though, because if, if she was involved in something like that, they are probably afraid to come forward now, uh -huh. you know, because of what has happened to her. Well, you do wonder about fear, you know, so many years have gone by sure. now. And, you know, I mean, at this point in time, you would think that anybody who had that immediate fear of something bad happening to them, that really would have passed now, you know? And so your, your only hope is that, at looking at that that they now have family and children of their own and and would finally come forward and say something again this is one of those cases where you you don't know the tiniest bit of information the tiniest bit of something that you know that you've never talked about and you've talked about this before you know when they went around in some of these cold cases and people would say nobody ever talked mm -hmm. to me if you're one of those people that nobody ever talked to now's the time to put yourself out there go forward to the police department and say i have something to say it may not be you may not think that it's that important this may be something where Maya. somebody was drinking in mm -hmm. a bar one night and told you something or said something or you maybe you were involved with somebody and they you know threatened you with something like this that could make all the difference in a case like this mm -hmm. and remember that this woman's poor son grew up without her mm -hmm. and at some point in time we have to say to ourselves they need to relook at who the suspects were in this case in the beginning mm -hmm. they Trying obviously give it felt like they had Pretty much, I mean, they. when you talk about the information that they are releasing, they're saying that she is in a car with friends of hers and that she was taken from that car to another vehicle and then taken to Dickinson. Well, obviously, police know a ton of information that they are not releasing, mm -hmm. and yet they're still holding on to the this case is like some sort of active investigation where they can't give more information to the public to make this actually move forward. I don't know what you're waiting for at this point. I think any information that the police have on this case should be public information. Get it out there. Let's start some sort of conversation about what happened to this poor girl. Mm -hmm. This is, you know. Because she's never found. I mean, there's no, there's no closure for her family right. or her son or her friends or anybody that would have been involved yeah. with that. So no. it's terribly sad. And unfortunately, that's really where her story pretty much ends. Um, her son was raised by her by her parents and and that's that's it, you mm -hmm. know. And and the very sad thing, you know, when her mother's talking about trying to bring information to this case, she is not mentioned on a lot of the older newspaper articles about, you know, what was going on on the Texas killing fields. And so it's just it's so vitally important that we keep her name out there and that somebody start to pay a little bit of attention because mm -hmm. this is one of those cases again you know a no body homicide but at some point in time you have to start looking at it because at this point people are dying and we're never gonna know mm -hmm. you know and the information that the police have this isn't a case where you can come up with dna evidence later you know and, and test it you know that it's in a vault or something like that as far as we know they don't have anything like that right so um we just put a plea out to you if you're in this area if you know anything about this case please contact Galveston District Attorney's Office, Galveston Sheriff's Department, or the Santa Fe Police Department. 
you know, which does seem to be where this case lies today. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Thank you, Gretchen. And next we're going to bring you um, Rebecca Beard. Uh, just another young lady that has never been found. So Rebecca's story definitely becomes a little bit different than Michelle's. Um, but again, there are a lot of similarities here. She is a single mother of a one-year-old daughter who's at home. She's 22 years old, a beautiful white female with blonde hair and hazel's eyes. Uh, she worked for the automobile dealership in Clute, Texas, which Clute's probably a little bit farther away than some of the other cases that we've talked about. Um, as you kind of, it's hard to explain, but if you follow Galveston Island down to the tip, then at the end of the tip on the mainland is Clute, Texas. Mm -hmm. So that gives people kind of an idea. If you're looking at a map, um, you'll you'll kind of find it, but it is actually on the mainland, um, much farther away from the I-45 corridor, but definitely kind of connected with a lot of these cases. So she was going through a divorce at the time. And on March 1st, 1986, Becky, as she was known to her friends, wanted a fun night out, you know, so she got dressed up, wore a long, um, white silk blouse with red triangles and blue stirrup pants with high heels. Do you remember stirrup pants? Mm, <laughs> I sure do. I could, uh, I could rock a pair of yeah, stirrup pants. Um, Not now. She carried a small yellow purse. No. <laughs> um, and went out for the evening. Uh, she was last seen in the early morning hours of March 2nd leaving the Excalibur Club in Freeport, Texas. Freeport and Clute are right next to each other. Her family reported her missing on March 4th. And unfortunately, you know, that's it. You know, the search kind of starts. There's discussion back and forth about whether or not, you know, maybe she just wanted a new life. You know, that kind of comes from the police looking at all angles of why somebody might have walked away from the life that they had. And, um, but pretty early on, they seem to focus in on a suspect. And so while in jail on a DUI charge, police decide to question a guy named Paul Gaylord Taylor Jr. about Becky's disappearance. Um, after questioning him and giving no information to police, he returned to jail. And the next day he was working as a trustee of the jail doing odd jobs. He basically escapes and flees and leaves. And then on January 3rd, police re receive a call. And so this would be January 3rd of 1987. Police receive a call from the Ocean Club in Atlanta, Georgia, where a bartender claims that a patron was bragging about escaping from the Brazoria County Jail and that he was wanted in that area for murder. And I think we've talked about Brazoria County. Again, that's going to include Freeport and Clute, but also Alvin, Texas, where mm -hmm. we talked about Bushier, quite a bit. Bushier and yeah, there. and um, Santa Fe too, mm -hmm. which we talked about earlier. And so he apparently had come in there and was bragging to some different people and 
um, the bartender did the right thing, you know, got a hold of the police and said, Hey, you know, we have this guy, it's pretty strange what he's saying. And so police definitely wanted to talk to him again, mm -hmm. but it, you know, he must've been given a lot of details when he's in that bar talking like that for yeah. them to, to very specifically know who to reach out to, right. You know, to say, Hey, we've got this guy. I, yeah, because you know, I don't think Brazoria I mean, County, he must have Texas had some detail. would be yeah, you know, on anybody's I mean, radar. I never heard of it before. I mm -hmm. lived here for a while. <laughs> and um, and so in 1988, he returns to the county um, and was charged with felony escape for escaping while being a trustee. And then again, he's questioned about Becky's disappearance. He while he's there, he's also arrested for claiming to be a police officer with the Alcohol Beverage Commission, to which he received a four-year sentence. And then in an unrelated charge, he seems to be given a 35-year sentence for um, intoxication while driving. So, which is weird to me, too, because that seems awfully high for, you know, driving. Yeah, I mean... 35 years is a long time. And all I can guess is, you know, we have an earlier DUI charge. And then you have this charge that comes along with just obviously a DUI. I'm thinking that he had picked up enough DUI charges along the way that that would make him habitual and probably maybe some sort of um, sentencing goes into place where they um all of a sudden decide you know that maybe there was a mandatory sentencing for um somebody who was habitual right, at that right. point in time um and i'm not not 100 sure whether or not some of the 35 years would have been probation or not because things certainly come up later while he's still in jail which um kind of makes it a mute point about mm -hmm. the for 35 year sentence. So um, the alcohol beverage commission charge does, you know, that he's impersonating a police officer really is one that, you know, when we talked about this case is a little bit farther off the Texas killing fields than what we normally talk about cases, you know, that far off. The reason that we wanted to talk about this case was because of this part right here. Mm -hmm. If he's impersonating a police officer, one of the things that just makes me a little concerned about whether or not this guy could have other victims out there is some of the victims that we have talked about of crimes that are unsolved have had some very strange disappearance. Like um, we had a girl who was in her car and the car was pulled off to the side of the road, you know, and there was a lot of speculation. Could that have been, and that was in Brazoria County. Mm -hmm. So could that have been something where she pulled off to the side of the road because she thought a police officer was behind her, you know? Um, and, and so that just really gave me kind of questioning, should this guy be looked at a little bit deeper? Um, but in that case, what happened here is a few years later in February of 1994, renovations began on the Excalibur Club and they found the driver's license under the disc jockey booth. And at that point, they found Becky's driver's license under the disc jockey's booth. And at that point, they go ahead and indict Paul Gaylord um, Jr. for her murder. Gaylord Taylor Jr., I'm sorry, for her murder. And 
again, I know that he was in the public eye. I just, in all the research that I could find, I could not quite find out why it's so important that her driver's license, where we know that she was at that club, was found under that disc jockey's booth. The only thing that I can think of is that in some ways he had to be tied to that. Mm -hmm. But I mean, he definitely was on the radar for quite a long time for this case. So he is then brought back to um, Brazoria County. Why he's in jail in Brazoria County, he, his friends start to come forward. And his friends start to come forward saying that he had bragged about taking her to her house, shooting and killing her um, in his house in Clute, Texas. And um, when this comes out, he then tries to convince another prisoner to go and um, kill one of one of the people who are witnesses against him. And so they come forward with another charge, which is uh, witness tampering and um, trying to uh, uh, murder for hire. And so at that, in 1985, Paul Gaylord uh, Taylor Jr. pled guilty to murder. Um, he said that he would lead them to her body. He led them to the Angleton area, which again is um, up Highway 6 and then over toward the... It's right before Clute. Angleton's yeah. right before Clute. Um, and uh, near the Bass Drop Bayou, and he said that that's where he buried her body and that that's where her remains could be found. Unfortunately, they did not find her remains there. Um, he then was sentenced to, uh, 25 years for the murder to hire. And then he was sentenced. Oh, I'm sorry. He was sentenced to 25 years for her murder. And, um, sorry, he was sentenced to life for her murder and 25 years for the murder for hire. Mm -hmm. And that's where he remains today is actually in prison. You know, unfortunately, I, I do believe that probably he did bury her in this area. I believe that he's probably being pretty honest about that. Um, unfortunately, when we're talking about the bayous in this area, again, we're looking at a lot of flooding. Especially mm -hmm. in that area, too. Because yeah. it, is, it is coastal. So. Yeah. And so, you know, this is a marshy kind of type of area. I think that, you know, it's very possible that unfortunately her remains are just no longer there. Mm -hmm. I think you had kind of wondering whether or not her remains could be any of the unidentified remains. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think I always question that, you know, it's kind of like the, the one lady that you were talking to uh, with her brother. Yeah, we recently had a, a woman who came and talked to us about her brother's remains in another area of Texas were just recently identified. He had uh, gone missing 35 years ago. And she was talking about how very surprised she was that his remains took 35 years to be identified. And they were identified through um, genetic genealogy. And um, she said they knew that he went missing in that area. They knew that he went missing at that time. His remains had been found actually within days of him being mm -hmm. reported missing. I think that was the saddest part of her right. story to me. Is, and that her family really waited 35 years to, to hear 
her father passed away shortly before she heard mm -hmm. that he had been, you know, found. And so he, um, and again, you know, one of the things that she said is that her brother was an African American male and he was identified as a white male. Right. And, um, mm -hmm. so all, all I can say is that, you know, definitely things happen, mistakes happen, you know, um, when these identities are happening, there's so little information to go on. And because he was identified as a white male in that mm -hmm. area, he was never looked at it being her brother. And she was pretty heated about that, um, in itself because she's right. like, obviously, you know, we're not that light. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, and just to hear her, passion and just the way she was talking i mean you could feel the hurt in her uh -huh. you know so it is very sad so and you know for 35 years mm -hmm. to to be living with that um i would hope that if her remains were found that um that you know they they will eventually be identified my guess is more than likely that her remains have never been found mm -hmm. so um but you Especially know. in that area, because right. I know we looked and, you know, there's quite a lot of uh, unidentified women that have been found in that area, right. especially in those bayous right there. So um, it was definitely one thing that caught my attention with her story. Mm -hmm. I would, again, though, I'd encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, you know, get on the websites for Name Us and look at, you know, who's been found in that area, farther down in that area. Um and maybe he's not telling the truth, you know, there's always a possibility that he left and went farther. I don't so. know. This guy seems to seem like a canary. So, I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> he seems to tell anybody who will listen to him, exactly. you know, what's going on. So, um, but her, this outcome is certainly a lot different than the outcome that we see on Michelle's case. Mm -hmm. So, but I, as we say that, you know, I, our hope is that the outcome will be different for her family, that maybe they also they can eventually find, you know, her remains and, and give her a place to live. She has a child mm -hmm. too, you know, yep. that has grown up without her mother. Mm -hmm. So. And with that, we are going to um, move into our next young lady, uh, Shelly Sykes, she went missing in May of 1986, right here in our current city of Texas City, Texas. So Shelly Sykes was a beautiful 19-year-old Caucasian with uh, brown hair and brown eyes. She was petite, 4'11", which is even shorter than I am, and only 90 pounds. While in high school, she was a member of the drill team and a captain of the flag team. She was known to be an excellent seamstress, seamstress and make her own clothing. She was known by her friends to be a feisty spitfire, and she wanted to open her own dance studio after college. She was actually working um, for the summer uh, at Guido's Restaurant, which is in on Galveston Island. If you're familiar with uh, Galveston Island, you are probably pretty familiar with the famous Guido's restaurant, which is on the seawall and has a large blue crab on the top of it. Yeah, it's and, very iconic. Yeah, it's uh, certainly a landmark. 
and as it sits on the seawall, it's directly across the street from the beach. So she was last seen on May 24th, 1986, just before midnight when she left her job at Guido's and was headed to her boyfriend's house in Lamarck to hang out and watch a movie. When she did not arrive at her boyfriend's house, he went ahead and called the restaurant and was told that she had left a while ago. He became very worried that maybe she had car trouble. She drove a 1980 Ford Pinto. And uh, I um, actually drove a Bobcat in high school and everybody used to call it a Pinto. And I used to be like, no, it's Bobcat. But I am very- It's a Pinto. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's funny because we were talking about this and I yeah. was like, you know, it was like uh, my biological mother, Phyllis, actually drove a Pinto too. So it's like kind of a weird yeah. connection, you know. But in the talking about that, we are very familiar with the car trouble that a Pinto would have. Yes. <laughs> and so it seems very understandable that her boyfriend would be worried. And um, so he and his father headed out to search for her. And so they're heading um from the mark area and they actually find her car um in the mud along the um as it's over the causeway bridge and so when you're coming over the causeway bridge from galveston island there is a turnoff there that you take that will lead you pretty much three different directions. You can go to Texas City, you can go to Lamarck, uh, or you can go up to Hitchcock in the Santa Fe area up on Highway 6. So it'll divide you off there to Highway 6, uh, Interstate 45, and then a small road that goes to the Texas City area. And so her car was really just off the road there in the mud. Um, they noticed that the window had been broken and that there was blood inside. So they immediately left the area, called police, came back out to the area to meet police. And when the police arrived there, they were thinking that maybe it was a simple accident. Which, you know, I mean, we talked about this earlier. You were like, that's hard to believe. I mean, there's blood in the car and an open oh, window. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and so... In thinking about that, I'm thinking that they're looking at it like maybe she like drove off the road, accidentally hit her head on the window, the window broke, that would have caused maybe the blood in the car and then disoriented a bit or um, thinking that maybe she could walk and find help. She got out of the car and attempted to walk somewhere. I mean, I could maybe understand that a little bit more if there was like another car involved or something like that, but just simply being pulled off to the side of the road, like it seems that she was and to have blood in the car, it, that seems like a, a stretch to me, mm -hmm. you know, um, to just assume. I think, you know, you know sometimes so when, when you're in those situations, I think you're like looking for the simplest answer. And the simplest answer isn't thinking, oh my gosh, somebody got kidnapped and, you know, here. I think the simplest answer is, oh, it's probably an accident. Well, maybe for the commoner, but for people like police officers, you would think that they might think a little bit more into that and have a little right. more insight, in my opinion. You know, I mean, I know everybody's not, you know, crime enthusiasts mm -hmm. or, you know, police officers like we are, but I mean, come on. <laughs> so, well, not crime enthusiasts in 1986. Well, you know? I mean, um, come on. So the police basically had said to the boyfriend, why don't you go ahead and take 
the car home. Um, and actually it was his father who was very quick thinking, who said no. He felt like something had bad had happened inside the car and he insisted on having that car towed by the police. Mm-hmm. Um, quick thinking for him. At this point in time, you know, Shelly's family isn't really, you know, alerted to a lot of what's going on. And, um, and so they're kind of really just dealing with, you know, the boyfriend and the, um, boyfriend's father and the police are really kind of thinking that she's just going to show up somewhere, you know, um, her family, you know, gets alerted later and, um, they certainly are very concerned. This is, um, very unlike her, you know, she, always is the person who, you know, everybody knows where she's going and, and she doesn't have any reason to, you know, wander off or, or do anything. So the police, of course, the next day as things are happening, the police did focus their attention very quickly thinking that maybe it was the boyfriend who had something to do with this. Um, even though he's at home with his family. With his dad, yeah. obviously. They're, uh, they're kind of focusing on that. The community of Texas city and then also the surrounding areas quickly got involved in getting the information about Shelly information about the fact that she was missing and out there to community members. They basically it said papered the town. Right. And, um, cause they were definitely getting it like in the trucker's hands, like mm-hmm. we had talked about, you know, and the amount of money that they raised was, yeah. you know, incredible for that time period. So yeah, they raised a $50,000 reward for mm-hmm. Shelly's, um, safe return. And, you know, when we talk about how much information they got out there and how many people were actually involved in the search, we didn't live here in that time. But when you talk to people who did, this is the one thing they remember. Mm-hmm. We've had many people who were, have told us they were involved in the search for Shelly Sykes. Um, they were involved in handing out flyers. They were, um, they remember that they remember the billboards. There were billboards up on the highway about her. Um, it was, really talked about everywhere. And I think, you know, when they talk about getting the hand, getting the flyers into the truckers hands, they really talk about how a lot of these um, posters were hung up all over the state. Mm -hmm. The attention on this case was staggering. And and the thing about this community, which still holds true to today is they are very involved with each other. I mean, right. if something's going down, your neighbors are here, they're going to reach out in one way or another. Now we have Facebook that, you know, definitely helps with that. But I mean, it's, it's really surreal how this small community really has each other's backs, even though you may not know your neighbor yeah. like that. So, I mean, and it's still like that today. I think part of feeling the pressure on seeing the posters in different places is what kind of brings us forward to the next part of what happens. And that's on June 23rd, 1987, Robert King phoned the El Paso police department because he was in El Paso, Texas, which is like five to six hours away from here. No, it's like 13 hours. Oh, from 13 here. hours. Okay. Yeah. So it's, Texas it's, is a large state. It is. <laughs> you can try that long and still be in Texas because <laughs> I've done that trip. So he's 13 hours away from here. He calls the El Paso police department, says that he has attempted suicide and he needs help. When the officers arrive there and they get him help, they also notice 
in the hotel room that there is a suicide note that mentions that he was involved in killing a woman in the Galveston area. Uh, after he's released from the hospital, he was questioned by officers and he told officers that he and a guy named Gerald Peter Zerst kidnapped Shelly Sykes, that he was very high that night and he didn't remember what happened, but he thought that she had been that she was in the truck with him and that he had placed his feet on her. That is so crazy to me. Yeah. Ugh, it's just every time you say that, it irks me. So he also stated that it was Zerst who hauled her out of the truck. And King even went as far as to wear a wire and meet up with Zerst and try to get him to talk about what had happened that night. Zerst refused to talk about it at all with King. Um, and that pretty much brought police to say, okay, well, we need to bring Zerst in and sit him down. When they first brought him in, sat him down, he denied ever being involved in this. But after a short period of time, he later confessed. He stated that it was King who had raped and killed Shelly, and that he didn't know what happened to Shelly's body, but that King had put her somewhere on the King property in San Leon, Texas. And again, just to stop here for people who don't know, so um, San Leon, Texas is really about 10 minutes outside of Texas City, but when you're talking about where her car was found on the causeway, it would be on the other side of Texas city. So it would be, you'd have to go almost all the way through or on the highway along through um, it's the 146, I believe, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You'd have to drive along that to get to San Leon. So um, I mean, you have to go over the Kima bridge too. Yeah. Like you have to, but it's again, then you're right back there on NASA, which uh -huh. we always talk about too. Yeah. So, not inside Texas city, but basically on the other side of Texas city is where, um, where they took her. And, um, what is known about this is that King and Zerst were drinking and smoking PBC, PCP, sorry. When they ran across Shelly King states, he was trying to flirt with Shelly while she was driving in the car next to them. He claimed that Shelly gave him a hand gesture that made him mad. I'm sh pretty sure that she flipped him off. Mm -hmm. um, and that they then ran her car off the road and pulled her out of the car, beating her um, as she tried not to be taken. Can you imagine that being like the one simple gesture that just like throws you over the edge? Right. I mean, my God, you know, but we see it every day. Road rage stuff. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, of course you got these guys high, but. And this does actually match up with a few um, people who had did come forward after Shelly was reported missing, who had seen the flyers and said that that night they had seen um, a woman fighting with a man where a truck was parked nearby. And then also a gentleman who came forward who said he had actually pulled over that night um, had gone up to a man fighting with a lady trying to drag her into a truck and confronted this person. And the person had yelled at him and said, this is a family member, go away. And he had gotten back. And in think how and small left. she probably looked. I mean, she probably looked small, like, right. like maybe it could have been their daughter or something yeah. like that, you know, because she's small, she's tiny. And the unfortunate thing is, you know, 
again, in that era without cell phones, you know, you don't have anybody immediately like seeing something like that happen and call 911. You have them going home and then hearing something on the news later mm -hmm. and coming back and, and finally coming forward, you know, but the very sad thing about this is if you see something like that, you know, maybe it is a family matter, but again, getting somebody involved in that at that time, at that moment might be the best thing to do, mm -hmm. you know, even if it turns out to be none of your business, mm -hmm. you know, um, anybody dragging or pulling somebody back in the car, I don't know if it's, if it's not any of your business. I mean, I really feel like at some point in time, even something has to be done, you know, even if it's to, even if the cops didn't follow right. up with it, at least there would have been a report on right. it. You know, you know, there could have been a timestamp. There could have been, you know, just something small. Uh -huh. So after he comes forward and then the blood is uh, finally tested inside her car, which this again goes back to a very quick thinking father of the boyfriend who made this happen you know, that they have this evidence when they test the blood inside the car, they actually find that it was King's blood inside mm -hmm. Shelly's car. So it was King who seemed to have pulled her out of the car and it was Zerst who was driving the truck. Um, police brought in helicopters. They searched large areas where Zerst said the body could have been. They also brought in radar, scanned around the growth, they did a lot of searching of the um, King property in uh, San Leon. And unfortunately, during several of these searches, the only thing that they actually did find was a small handmade blouse. Family members believed the blouse was hers, but testing was inconclusive. They never found her body. Um, leading them to the body was part of the agreement of not having a life sentence. Um, unfortunately they never actually fulfilled that part of the agreement, but, um, when they were convicted, they were not given a life sentence. Um, and the other part of this is that police did not actually charge them with murder. Yeah. I know that blew my mind. Police actually charged them with uh, kidnapping. Yeah. Um, I actually think this makes sense on the police's part. part. So you're going to get as close as you possibly can to a life sentence with a kidnapping charge. But the thing is, if they had found her body later, they could have come back exactly. later and charged her with the uh, murder charge at that point. So then they would have gotten that sentence out of them too. Um, and if they were going to get them to plead guilty on the uh, kidnapping charge, at least they knew that they were going to get them you know, they were on the up. hook somehow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I think the hope always was here that they would eventually find her body and be able to use that murder charge right. to get it. Um, so police spent a lot of time looking at both Thurston King for the possibility of other crimes. One of those other crimes we covered in episode, um, 17, that was the Susan Eads case. Um, and they actually had them listed for years as possible suspects, partly because there's so much similarity between this case and Susan Eads. Susan Eads was also in her car. Mm -hmm. It did appear that she was 
in some way run off the road or stopped because maybe there was something wrong with her car and then was confronted and, and dragged away and, and killed. And so, so the similarities were there. It wasn't until, even though both Thurston King completely denied having any involvement in it wasn't until DNA testing actually finally cleared them. And then, as you know, in episode 17, what we talked about was that genetic genealogy finally solved this case, mm -hmm. her case. Um, King became eligible for, for parole in 2012. He was denied and then he died in prison in 2015. Zerst actually still remains in prison today. The family has found a way to honor Shelley's memorial. Um, they have started the Shelley Sykes Memorial Scholarship Fund, which is a scholarship given to a Texas City student. And they have not stopped hoping that someday Shelley's body will be found. That's the hope, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is a very sad episode to me that all three of these young ladies, you know, the remains aren't found. Their families don't really mm -hmm. get that full closure, you know? And I think, you know, with, with Shelly Sykes, you know, when you talk about the San Leon area, you are still talking about a incredibly rural oh, yeah. area, a lot of overgrown area, a lot of mm -hmm. places that have never been developed. And, and it may not be because it's not really a good area town. I mean, right. you know, when people talk about that area in Baycliffe, which are right next to each other, uh, it's not really... <laughs> you know, quite popular. Let's yeah, it's say not that. a place I where mean, we're getting any big housing developments. No. Um, mm -hmm. And part of that is flooding, too. I mm -hmm. mean, it's not all just, you know, that, but... So... Incredibly sad. But the hope is that, you know, at some point in time, something will actually give give that, you know, to happen, is that her body will be able to be found and, and put at the place that they have a memorial for her, mm -hmm. you know, in the cemetery where they have a memorial for her. All right, guys, thanks for listening today. And as always, please send us your questions. But before signing off today, we have an exciting announcement for our listeners. We will be attending CrimeCon this April in Vegas. We will not have a booth as we are newbies. But if any of y'all want a Bodies in the Bayou sticker, we will send you one for free by April 19th. Just send us a message with your address and we'll get it out to you. The design can be seen on Facebook. Yes, we're very excited about the new design of our logo. And if anybody's going to CrimeCon, we are excited to meet up with you and um, chat, see what's going on. So let us know. We're always looking to talk to other fellow crime con people. Yes, absolutely. Um, so again, send us a message on Facebook um, that, with your address that says you want to receive a um, free Bodies in the Bayou sticker and um, get that to us before April 19th. April 19th. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.